Our guest on today's program is David Wertheim. David is the co-founder and co-editor of the online magazine Tea Leaf Nation. He's a Harvard Law School graduate based in Washington, D.C., who was indeed a practicing attorney before leaving his legal life to start this online publishing venture. David, welcome to the business. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to hear a little bit about your journey. Can you tell us uh, what Tea Leaf Nation is about and who your audience is? So Tea Leaf Nation, which is accessible at tealeafnation.com, is, as you say, an e-magazine. Its goal is to aggregate and synthesize the chatter on China's massive social media platforms into English language stories that are accessible to Western readers. Our audience currently tends to be journalists, academics, uh, policymakers, China watchers generally. Um, and what we're hoping to do is draw in more and more people um, who might be curious about China and need a place to start. So this is being seen primarily by people outside of China? It has a decent audience in China as well, um, but obviously because it's primarily in English, uh, it's going to be more Western-facing, and the majority of our readers are in the United States and in the West. So you left law to create a website about life in China through stories sourced and social media. What was the inspiration for that? Where did that idea come from? Yeah, it's sort of a bit of a, a career break or a non sequitur, um, at least at least on its face. You know, I like to think that um, it's feeding into my broader interests, um, which are obviously uh, China, Chinese policy, and um, policy generally. So when I left corporate law after about four years, I remember the uh, managing partner telling me that I was crazy for jumping out of a plane without a parachute. Um, I was optimistic that I could build a parachute before I hit the ground. Uh, well, I guess see if that's true. Um, but, you know, essentially I felt that this was a chance for me to create something meaningful. Um, I wanted to create something lasting. I knew broadly what my interests were, but I didn't know precisely how I was going to translate that into practice. And it took a few months before this idea was born, so to speak. Now, I read in another interview that you gave that you, uh, you were walking the streets of Hong Kong at three in the morning, sort of equivocating over this big decision that you had to make. And ultimately, uh, you decided to take the leap. Uh, what did your friends and, and family and colleagues, uh, we, we got the one response about, you know, you're crazy, but <laughs> what did most people think? Well, in fact, most people, if they thought that, they, they were kind enough not to tell me. Um, although, of course, you know, people who say you're crazy are probably doing it with good motivations. Uh, obviously, they want the best for you. But in fact, most people were very supportive, um, or at least that's what they said. And I was and, and have been and continue to be heartened by the level of support I've gotten, you know, both institutionally from people that you know, were strangers to me until a few months ago um, and my friends and family. So I, I have to say, overall, I've been pleasantly surprised when you compare, you know, the, the picture that I had of uh, sort of going it alone versus the reality, which is I feel that I'm very much not alone, even if I'm not sort of ensconced in a larger institution. Let's talk a little bit about the emergence of social media in China. The FT published an article entitled, The Weibo Generation Can Reboot China. And in that article, the authors claim that the generation of microbloggers in China today can no longer be seduced by traditional propaganda. Uh, so it's been almost a dozen years since you were first living in China as part of the Peace Corps assignment that you had. And obviously, there's been a lot of change there. What are your observations about how China has changed in this realm? And do you think that that claim is true that these authors have made? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for reminding me that it's been almost a dozen years. I can't believe that. I, I do think that China's changed tremendously, uh, you know, sort of in China development years, right? A decade is almost like 30 years anywhere else just because of the breakneck pace of growth and social change 
I think when we're talking about the the microblogging or the Weibo generation, um, you know, and Michael Ante is an expert on this. I think first of all, it, it's worth pointing out that social media didn't even exist as a concept when I was in China. And I remember that one of the things that I most wanted to do when I was there was get a sense of what people really thought. Learning Chinese was sort of the first step for me. I showed up there not knowing really anything about China.、Um, and I think to myself now, if only that tool had been available to me then. I mean, you literally have、uh, hundreds of millions of people, tens of millions of them on a daily basis in China, saying what they think. Online to really anyone who will listen has the capacity to read、um, and comprehend what they're writing, and so、um, this is a tremendously powerful tool. And I think it opens a window into the country that is really quite privileged. And you know, we get to sort of be a fly on the wall, and our hope is that we can capture some of this spontaneous chatter and bring it over. We see examples very often of you know social media hitting the real world and having a transformative effect. It might be helpful for people listening to this who aren't familiar with the social media landscape in China. If you could describe a little bit, because it closely parallels what we what we're familiar with here in the West, but it's got its own sort of、uh, Chinese version of it. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah,、um, it's it's its own ecosystem, certainly. And、um, the the easiest way to describe Chinese social media is what I focus on, and what many people focus on is this so-called Weibo, which. Basically, which literally means microblog, and basically refers to、uh, a series of Twitter-like platforms.、Uh, the the problem with that comparison is that Weibo's scale, first of all, is massive within China. You have 400 million registered users on the most popular Weibo platform alone,、uh, you know, and that's a big chunk of China right there.、Uh, and its social role is so important because it's the closest thing that China has to sort of A, a, a free platform for speech and debate. It's sort of this public square where people can gather,、uh, break news, discuss the issues of the day,、um, and it also maybe one last thing to help give people a picture is that it's not quite like Twitter. It has sort of a richer set of sharing and comment features, and it tends to be, I think, both both a, playing a Facebook-like role and a Twitter-like role.、Uh, it's a way for people to sort of share. Photos of themselves and their, you know, their trips and their stories, but it's also a way for people to talk about the political stuff. So you really see those two functions being combined in a single platform. And, and the 140 character limitation is not the same there as it is here, because here you really do have to parse your your thoughts very carefully, whereas there the characters carry、uh, more of a message. Absolutely,、right? yeah. I mean, the Chinese language is simply denser. So when you apply the same Character limit. It it doesn't it 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 doesn't pinch as much. It allows for a more complete thought.、Um, I did a test. I was able to fit three Tang Dynasty poems into one 140 character tweet.、Um, actually, I didn't tweet it, but you know, I did the word count test. I I, I figured I would be violating you know some、uh, ancient Chinese poet's intellectual <laughs> copyright otherwise. But、um, it it certainly is true. And another thing that often happens, you'll see, is that. Weibo users will append、uh, a JPEG, sort of a or a GIF, a photo file,、um, in which you know they have a long form essay, which they then just pass around. And so, really, the 140 character limit just does not have the same effect as with Twitter. I mean, all of these tools are a double-edged sword, both from the perspective of the grassroots users and from the perspective of the government. Right? If you're a user, you know that the government, to some extent, can watch you. 
They may not be interested in watching you, but they may. Um, you know, it, it's capturing what you write, and it's um, also a place, obviously, where the government can go and manipulate the dialogue and affect the dialogue to some extent, and you accept that bargain as a user. And as a government, I think uh, China's government has decided to live with this platform, with all of its attendant ambiguities and dangers, um, in part because the community so stridently protects what they've built. And I think the blowback for shutting down the platforms wholesale would actually be quite intense. Um, and also, as you say, because it provides a sort of temperature gauge you know, in a system that doesn't have some of the same built-in democratic feedback mechanisms that some of our officials have, they have to go onto platforms like Weibo. But of course, then they accept that a lot of what's going to be said may not be what they want to read. Can you talk a little bit about your challenges sort of day to day, having entered into a very competitive sector? Uh, you know, this digital content space is really uh, densely packed and, and challenging, I would think. Um, so what's your business model? What's your business plan? And what are the kinds of challenges you're facing? Yeah, and I can say quite frankly that we sort of backed into a lot of the questions that we're now facing. Um, I, when I was looking at what I was going to start when I left my law firm job, uh, some very well-meaning and very knowledgeable people said things like, you need to have a business plan. You need to have some idea of what you're doing. Um, frankly, though, I didn't. And um, I guess I went with what you would call the lean startup model, which is keep costs down to zero, find a way to build you know, a minimum viable product, get your idea out there and see how people respond. And uh, luckily, I guess, people have responded positively to what we've been able to do. So now we're facing all these questions that are becoming quite acute as you know, we go out and search for funding or revenue of any kind. You know, what do we do and how do we articulate the long-term vision for ourselves as an organization? Um, it's fascinating, and I wish I had good answers, but I can say that as a new media organization, we are, as you say, in a very competitive environment, in particular because at the end of the day, readers have become accustomed to demanding quality content but not paying for it. And I don't accept myself from that group. I read all sorts of excellent articles every day, and a dime doesn't leave my pocket in most cases. But so that has a sort of trickle-up effect. Um, you know, if we're going to syndicate content out, we have to face those same pressures. Um, you know, writers aren't being paid, whether it's by us or by other for-profit media outlets that are turning a profit. I hope to create an organization that serves our writers just as well as it does our readers. Um, and so the question is, of course, for example, do we seek to monetize the content that we have? And if we do, how readily can it be monetized? Or do we seek to sort of create a package of services that surround uh, what our core function is that we can in turn monetize? For example, providing paid research uh, to private clients, um, whoever those clients may be. Uh, that's a question that we haven't begun to answer. And what you really quickly realize is that, um, or what I'm certainly realizing anyway, is that a lot of it just comes down to capacity. So there are a lot of great ideas that um, you know, friends and well-wishers have shared with me where I nod my head and say, that is an excellent idea, but I can't act on it because it requires too much time. And in particular, as, uh, you know, as an upstart media company that tries its best to appear as big and robust as it can be and to create timely daily content, we're always going back to that well, where we always have to serve our readers first by creating content. And with that constant drumbeat, 
it's very hard to move beyond those issues, sort of look at the forest and forget about the trees um, and go out and sort of try to create these new revenue streams. And you're not alone in that. I think many entrepreneurs would say that, that that's the very same issue that they face. Um, who is your competition? You've, got, you've certainly got uh, a niche market to some extent here. Are there others that are trying to do the same thing that you're doing? There are. In fact, I mean, there are websites that do some of the same things that we do, uh, and we weren't necessarily even aware of them when we started our project. Uh, but I think the difference is that um, we are trying to bring a, a brand of serious journalism, writing that could belong anywhere, in, you know, in any of the best media outlets and, and not seem out of place, to a subject that often can be hilarious, profane, filled with rumors, and to be able to take those uh, you know, memes right, or those viral videos and put them in an intelligent context that explains what larger question is being engaged is, I think, our innovation. Um, and in that, in that respect, I think a model, perhaps, I think competitor is probably putting it too, definitely too strongly, is Global Voices Online, which is a wonderful nonprofit which was started with a goal of um, bringing you know, voices from the blogosphere throughout the world uh, and translating into other languages and turning them into stories, curated stories. Um, I think the difference, though, is that they're you know, much broader than we are. What we're going to try to do, I think, is be more narrow, but maybe go a little bit deeper. Is there a bigger sort of purpose or vision and aspiration that you have in mind for Tea Leaf Nation? There absolutely is. I mean, first of all, in the long term, we really are trying to become a long-lasting, respected media organization. And I think what larger purpose we're trying to serve really is to build this bridge between China and the West, and in particular, to create something that allows Westerners, um, allows Americans, for example, to understand China better. And I think putting on my, you know, taking off my business hat and putting on my policy hat for a second, uh, I think the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China is simply too important for us not to get it right. And so I think that's one of the ways that we envision ourselves serving organizationally, is helping to bring sort of new voices to this arena. Um, and I think this kind of cross-cultural work does require, I think, newcomers who are not bounded by some of the traditional thinking. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we do have the capacity, I think, to help change the world in some very small way. And it's very fortunate for me to be standing at what is this sort of serendipitous intersection of a business, policy, law, international relations, the internet, um, all interests of mine, but which I never would have been able to conceive sort of coming together so seamlessly in a single job if I hadn't in some ways come across it by accident. So it sounds like you're enjoying this. I am enjoying it. Right. I am enjoying it. David Wertheim is co-founder and co-editor of Tea Leaf Nation, which can be found online at tealeafnation.com. David, thank you for joining us on The Business. Thank you. My pleasure.